Hello! I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. Warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Ooh, that's very loud. Or maybe it's something in my head. I don't know. But anyway, this is Solidarity Breakfast with uh, Annie and returning, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm here. And, of course, Marcus. Thanks, Annie and Rebecca. And, yeah, good morning to the uh, many, many listeners out there. Yeah, that's right. And we've got lots of things happening on the program today. We're going to go from arts to... uh, uh, aged care to uh, down to the docks where they're uh, rallying for uh, better con- um, outcomes in the negotiations at DP World. We're going to go to this is the week that was for a roundup from Kevin, and we're then going to talk to Don Sutherland, decod- uh, assuming the. I always feel very worried when I predict something is going to happen and in the show at happens. the beginning, and then it doesn't. When you're oh, uh, relating okay. to uh, technology, you know, like will they wake up? Will they oh, answer yes, their phone? Yes. Will they just be asleep, the bastards? But no, he won't be. Don Don's uh, reliable, and uh, uh, he's going to. He's he's fascinated by the uh, uh, words coming out that uh, the Green New Deal concept mm. uh, is being um, raising its head in the union movement in Victoria, which yeah. uh, Victoria always leads the way. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, development. Yep. Yeah. Now, we should remind people that uh, we still haven't reached our target. So there's a little ad there that you might like to press telling them that it's not too late. Past it. There we go. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late. To donate to 3CR Radiothon, 94198377, or check our website, 3cr.org.au. Now, um, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is coming up. It may or may not have uh, reached your... Uh, your Inbox world, or Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, starting on Friday the nineteenth, and it's going for eleven days for the mm. till the thirtieth of July. Yeah. And I uh, have gone through the entire program to see what's going on, and I've been busy speaking to different filmmakers and stuff like that. It is one of the most amazing programs I've ever seen. There's a hundred and ten films. Wow. 
that's a lot of films. Yeah. And uh, like there's a couple of packages of uh, shorts and sessions yeah, yeah. and stuff like that, but there's a whole lot of features mm. and it goes right across a whole lot of subject areas. And uh, and in fact, if you want to hear more about it in on screen, I've uh, done a little roundup of some of the things that I've noticed in the program. But I thought this is a perfect opportunity mm. to uh, uh, play an interview I've done with... Uh, Andrew Carton, who is a person who's made a film documentary, and he did it over nine years. My God. Mm. Uh, What he's done is document this uh, uh, making of the Blacksmith's Tree Memorial um, that was done uh, as a community arts project after the 2009 fires. And the lunatic thing about it is, of course, is that, that they've made a metal gum tree that looks like the gum trees that they're in. It, I mean, it's quite bizarre, but it's worthwhile watching this film yeah. um, because it's a really, f- well, as I say, no, I won't even say. Let's just listen to the chat I had with Andrew. So uh, can you give uh, an, our audience uh, an understanding of how you got involved in this uh, project? Okay, um, I moved to. Uh, I'll just begin again. I was invited to participate in an artist's uh, residency, a place called Dunmuchen, which was originally uh, set up by Clifton Pugh in the 60s. Um, I was uh, doing a residency overseas at the time and was due to uh, move into Dunmuchen on the 11th of February, a couple of days after Black Saturday. Oh, goodness. So I returned from um, Graz in, in Austria on the on the 8th, and, um, and Black Saturday happened. So uh, obviously I didn't move in all the spaces at Dunmuchen. Dunmuchen is in um, Cotton's Bridge, which is between Hurstbridge and St Andrews, um, and Strathewan. So all the vacant spaces there were made available for people in Strathewan who'd lost their properties. And um, it took uh, a few months for things to sort of settle down, for want for a better term. I moved in in November and shortly afterwards became aware of the Tree Project as, uh, as a, this sort of extraordinary community and artisan response to uh, the Black Saturday fires. And, of course, uh, people had lost neighbours, they'd lost property, they had lost uh, their um, their sense of confidence, I guess. Uh, and this uh, particular project, how did you start the idea of filming the uh, community reaction? It actually began, the filming actually began um, with uh, a chap by the name of Warwick Page and a colleague of his, uh, Rachel Lowe, um, he's, he was a local videographer and, and he started filming the very, very early uh, um, public forging events where blacksmiths had set up uh, um, portable forges at the St Andrews Markets, at uh, Eltham and a few other um, places in the area, basically just forging leaves. And, um, and people were coming up and... and um, um, donating $15, $20, $25 to have a leaf forged in their name. Um, 
And uh, a couple of years later, I, um, I met Amanda Gibson. She moved into, um, into Dunmuchen. And I realised that uh, after um, a year or so of work filming the uh, pre-project, it had stopped and, and no one was actually sort of bringing all of these elements together. And I, I was um, working on a, on a short film documentary series at that time, um, which, uh, which I was filming in, in, um, in Sarawak. And, um, and as that was coming to, uh, to um, the completion, I realized that if no one actually took the reins of this project, uh, so many critical moments of the, the tree project would be uh, just wouldn't be recorded, and it just it just spoke to me as a as you know one of the most significant uh, uh, sort of cultural ga- gatherings, if you like, of uh, of blacksmiths and welders and, and volunteers and uh, people who were uh, fire affected who, who arrived at, 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 at the forge or. At the Tree Project factory in Whittlesea, and and, ju- and just wanted to help, and did things like counting leaves and sorting the three and a half thousand leaves that came in. I mean, it it, it, it was a huge undertaking, and uh, and literally thousands of people um, got involved. And so, um, yeah, one day I just arrived with my camera and asked Amanda if if she wouldn't mind uh, me filming some of the. Um, some of the more sort of detailed aspects of production, and then we started interviewing people because I realised that everyone involved was was you know, you're really there were there were so many stories in, embedded in, in in every individual involved in the project. So um, once that got underway, um, Warwick turned up with a shoebox of his uh, of his of his tapes, and and people turned up with uh, DVDs of material they'd shot, and then people contributed photographs, and so it, it it grew into this sort of collective sort of community collective exercise where um, uh, I, I actually I, I then encouraged people to film and document wherever they'd heard about the tree project, wherever um, people were, were gathering to forge elements of it so that um, they could contribute uh, components as they um, the making to the, you know, the completed film. So, so in actual fact, it became one of the strands in the uh, original community uh, project of building a tree of individual... Uh, it's a gum tree, effectively, with all the leaves. What three thousand, over three thousand leaves, contributed from all around the world. Who would have thought that there was an international confederation of blacksmiths? For goodness' sake. Well, exactly, and um, I mean, this is one of the really fascinating outcomes was that uh, so many people had thought that blacksmithing was 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 done and dusted, um, and in fact, since. The blacksmith tree, particularly in Victoria and uh, this area, I, I still live up here, and it, it's been a, a fabulous resurgence in, in interest in um, blacksmithing and related uh, skills. So the uh, Bandura Forge, where uh, where a lot of the um, uh, individual sort of branches and and sort of heavy um, uh, forging took place. Uh, they are running courses now for people of all shapes and sizes and and ages who are um, 
absolutely fascinated in in in, in this uh, in this in this practice. I mean, RMIT used to used to teach blacksmithing. I remember when I first moved to Melbourne, there was still the fragments of uh, of a blacksmithing course at RMIT, and uh, and that sort of things um, uh, come to a, come to an end. So you've got uh, blacksmiths associations around the country pick up the training mantle, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, it. Uh as uh, Amanda says in the film, it's a, f- a thing that is generally associated with uh, a strong men and it's uh, often thought to be quite a clumsy art, but in actual fact it's quite fluid. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and a lot of that fluidity was, um, was, was very much introduced to the project through her efforts and the... Um, and the and the other women who became involved in in, uh, um, in the sort of voluntary aspect of the project. So there's a whole team of women who learnt how to weld because it was a massive welding task, and um, and they really brought this sort of sense of grace and and um, organic movement into the, uh, the, the 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 fabrication or the sort of final construction of of, of, the, of the blacksmith tree from uh, welding the the tiny stems to the leaves, the the leaves and stems to branches, uh, those branches to the larger branches, and then the larger branches to the uh, um, to the to the main trunk. Um, there's there's many aspects to this film, and it's really worth seeing because it's not just it's about a big project that is done at a grassroots level, and on one level, it tells you something that uh, was, is pointed out, one of the main elements of the film, is that this is a memorial uh, where people are dealing, really dealing with, grappling with the big issues of life and death and working out how a memorial can incorporate people uh, contributing to the memorial rather than a memorial being done for them. Exactly, exactly. And um, uh, the, um, the film in, in some way... Uh, tries to, you know, I, I tried to, to to tease that story out through uh, through the interviews and, and the sort of documentation of that of that process because the um, the people element of it was was so valuable. I mean, there's there's um, there's so many extraordinary stories that, that I couldn't tell in the film, but just I could mention sort of there's one person you might recall, one of the women. Um, who talks about uh, joining the Lady Welders crew and yeah. she talks about it through Rotary. Yep. Uh, she's from Whittlesea and she's the, she's the local um, undertaker. Ah. So her story was, was phenomenal um, because she was dealing with families mm. uh, who had lost yeah. you know, so many people in, in that whole region. And so carrying this... Uh, um, you know, burden grief. Of, of grief, uh, but also holding that for all the individual. And she, and because they're people, you know, they're neighbours and friends. You know, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary capacity this woman has has to um, support the community. But there was a point where she needed something as well, and the blacksmith tree gave her that. It's quite extraordinary, and the and the other thing that's really important about this film, it seems to me, is that it actually 
shows the people who are involved, who are genuinely speaking, um, working class people who are very hands-on. That That's a very important element in this, uh, the understanding of what art is for. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it reached it reached a lot of people, a lot of people who hadn't had that uh, experience of, um, of, of art being uh, part of the community as opposed to being apart from it. That it was, uh, you know, it was something that you could actively uh, uh, participate in, and then the end result was was something that uh, that no one could could really define, uh, other than than have an experience with. Uh, I think that is, uh, I mean, that that story in some way is exemplified by. Uh, I, I was actually speaking to someone I, I met in met in town in Hurstbridge earlier today, who who purchased some DVDs of the film, and she was re- she was really moved at one of the um, local Vint screenings. So the Vint screenings all over the Shire and uh, uh, all over regional Victoria, these community led screenings, and uh, the Anglican Church booked two screenings. I went to one at Diamond Creek, and and it was extraordinary. There, there was the number of people, the number of elderly people, some of the oldest people I've, I've ever seen in this area had come out to watch this film. When the film was, was when the screening um, ended, people were talking about um, fires that, that they'd experienced in the in the 50s and 60s um, that few of us had, had ever heard about. But the other remarkable thing was they all wanted to go and see the blacksmith tree. But uh, obviously, most of them were were too old, uh, too feeble to to drive. But as a result of their desire to go there, a bunch of people organised cars and hired a, a, a minibus, and and people just made these pilgrimages to the to the to the tree. So it kind of created this um, sense of yes, there was this remarkable thing that was made. Uh, there was this extraordinary experience that people had had, but they also wanted to have have have, have, have share in that experience as well. And by making those those pilgrimages, those trips out to Strathewan to see the tree, uh, was another layer of, of of experience and another layer of um, uh, you know experiencing the stories that, that that flow out from the film. I know it's so kooky too because it's a, actually quite a realistic gum tree being placed in amongst gum trees. Well, yes. That's the kooky. Other, the, the other, well, <laughs> what's really kooky is that when it was installed um, and everyone stepped back, uh, quite, you know, about 200 metres back, up the tea and sandwiches, and we looked at the tree, we realised that the tree was the same height as the um, seedlings had grown that were planted after Black Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, it was... <laughs> it's kooky. It's kooky, yeah. but it's fantastic. Yeah. It, it's actually a really enthralling film. I, I, I think it was uh, it was much more enthralling than I thought it would be, I'll have to say. Uh, I think it's a great experience, and it's great that it's on at the uh, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival so that more people can see it. Did it take you a long time... I mean, it's ten years from the beginning to the end of that process, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It was nearly nine years for, yeah. for, for me um, uh, putting the whole thing together, and uh, I had I had another 
um, sort of feature documentary that I was working on in in between, and um, so so I was finishing shooting and finishing that. Um, I was in India, and uh, so I had to had to get that that done. But then there are all these other aspects around the um, around the blacksmith tree that just just kept kept happening. So every so often, Amanda would would, would phone said. Um, oh, we've we've got a scissor lift. We're heading out to the tree to give it a polish. Do you want to come? Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'd yeah, go yeah, out. Yeah. There'd be an opportunity to get some aerial shots, and there'd be some. Just it was it was just it was also a great opportunity to to meet with everyone again because even though I was uh, at almost every aspect of the fabrication of the tree uh, and and there with a the camera. Everyone felt comfortable with me being there, and and just became part of the part of the crew, and and there was this sort of wonderful bond that grew with 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 everyone, and particularly the the sort of the, the core team uh, have now formed a kind of um, cooperative, if you like, and uh, and are working on other sort of public uh, community based sculptures, which. Um, which has been remarkable, you know, and they've produced some extraordinary work since uh, since the uh, the blacksmith tree. Yeah, it's amazing. It is actually a, a great story, and uh, people, of course, can go and see the black blacksmith tree. Yes, Fortune Fire. That's on the twenty second of July at the Backlot Studio. Oh, yeah. at the back black Backlot. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. thanks, and thanks uh, for spending some time talking to me about it. That's my pleasure. Thank you very much. No worries. It will be worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the Crossroads, time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, and you are on 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, Rebecca and Marcus. Um, anyway, that sounds like a really interesting... I know it's an interesting film, so if you want to get down to uh, involve yourself with that, some of the documentaries from the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, you should go online because there's an enormous program and it gives you a chance to look through to see what might be interesting to you. That's org. What is it? .org.au forward slash. That's it. I remembered. It's the letters. And it's when, the letters. when does it start? Do you... 19th. Okay. 19th of March, yeah. And, oh, oh, July. July. Oh. Mm. Anyway, we're moving on. Um, this week, there was the Fair Go for Pensioners conference. They had it on uh, Thursday. It was an all-day affair. There were, it was action-packed, I'll have mm. to say. Lots of speakers. Yeah. Lots of different speakers. And also arranged in a way where... You know, people spoke, and then there was a little plenty of space for the audience uh, of about uh, sixty people to actually involve themselves in conversation because it was 
Yeah, because mm. it was a community uh, building exercise. Uh, I just pulled out a little bit of a, uh, it was a speech uh, given by uh, Rhonda Held from CODA, Council of the Aged. And uh, this is one of the themes of the uh, conference. We will play others later on, but this is actually about uh, uh, the uh, recent uh, Royal Commission into the age uh, into aged care. But also, it's really important because what's going on in the social security sec- sector is that this LMP government's decided that it's going to put everything uh, online. They're going to digitalize. Mm. They're going to actually outsource everything, automation. Uh, automation. Yeah. Uh, this is a really big deal. And uh, this is uh, some of the comments that uh, Rhonda held had to say in the uh, aged care area. Thank you. Uh, I've been given seven minutes to talk about the future of um, the future aged care needs of a multicultural Victoria. We've got a Royal Commission spending a year and a half on this topic, so um, I'll try and be as quick as I can. Um, Obviously the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety has really put a spotlight on the issues facing our aged care system. Many of these have already been dealt with in numerous reports on the aged care system that have come before that. Um, Code of Victoria has been involved um, in running information sessions across the state. We've had about eight sessions and over 200 people involved in providing them with information about how the Royal Commission works and really encouraging people to have their say and we see that as our core purpose. Um, Apart from encouraging people to write submissions, uh, we're also putting their views into a submission that will eventually be collated by Coda Australia from across the country. Um, But some of the common themes that are coming from these sessions include people's sense of disempowerment um, when they enter the aged care system, um, experiences of ageism, um, looking at all the system's failures, quality and cost of care, the workforce issues, the rights of people to older people to self-advocate um, and not be considered uh, incompetent to make their own decisions. Uh, transport comes up a lot for people living in the community and obviously the question of intersectionality. So what are the additional barriers for people who come from uh, diverse cultural backgrounds and other groups that have particular needs? I think at the heart of all these issues is the inherent ageism in our community um, and basically a lack of respect for our older citizens that comes you know, across the board both from the community and from governments. <clears throat> It's also clear that many aged care providers, and this has been such a common theme, um, have great difficulty forming constructive relationships with families who are just there wishing to see their family member get the best care. So they really need to improve their complaints handling processes. Providers also need genuine consumer and family engagement in the planning and quality improvement of their services. and. Uh, with the work I did with Coda Australia for three years across the country, it was very clear that there's not many places that run really good uh, residence committees or consultative committees that hear the voices of older people about what they'd like the services to look like. Um, so Coda's got a number of um, requirements or things that we think should happen in the future, and these have been generally supported again by the people uh, that we've met in our consultations. 
Uh, as of December 2018, we had 128,000 people waiting for a home care package across the country. Um, and of these, 73,978 had been offered no alternatives. So some people do get a lower level package or uh, a Commonwealth Home Support package. But So there's a lot of people needing care. Um, and I think somebody quoted the other day that something like 53 people a month die while they're waiting for home care packages. Um, so we need more care at home, uh, which means more packages, but the package system itself also needs to change. We need to get better value from the money that's coming from the government. We need transparency regarding the costs. Uh, providers from the 1st of July are supposed to be putting their costs on the MyAgeCare website, but again, whether they're real costs, you know, how transparent they are is a question. Um, the second thing we want is for individuals to have control of their residential aged care funding so that if they get an approval to enter residential aged care, this can be portable across facilities. So rather than the government allocating to particular providers a particular number of places, um, that this would mean that the good providers could expand their services and those that are not providing a good service would go out of business because people would not take their money to those providers, or at least that's the theory. Um, obviously, staff, we need um, aged care staff primarily to be better valued, so the, the profession itself to be valued in our community, but also to be better trained and to have more of them to meet the needs of residents and people being supported at home. We um, also have the issue, I'm just talking to someone over morning tea, about how complex our aged care system has become and people needing help to just find their way around and understand the different steps they need to go through. Um, COTA has a new program called Aged Care Navigators and if over lunch you want to chat to our wonderful volunteers, Mary and Isabel and Edith over there, um, you can pick up a brochure about that. We have a phone service that's... Um, provides volunteer support, so uh, if you register with us, we can ring you back and spend as much time as you need on the phone just helping you find your way around the system. Um, in relation to, sorry, going back to staffing, we don't think ratios themselves are the answer, um, but we do think that there needs to be flexibility to address needs as they change and also transparency so that if you're going to an aged care facility, you actually know how many staff are on duty at any particular time. We need better regulation, um, more unannounced visits. I think the regime that was introduced was supposed to be unannounced visits, but there's still an element of people being able to prepare for those. And um, obviously we need to, to cater to all types of diversity. So cultural diversity, our Aboriginal community, people from LGBTIQ backgrounds, We've got a group of care leavers who grew up in institutional care who are absolutely petrified of having to re-enter an institution as they age. We've got our veterans, people with dementia and younger people with disabilities who are still ending up in um, aged care. And obviously aged care needs to be affordable. Um, we've had some minor changes to the fee structure for home care packages, but we're hearing stories of people in residential aged care who are actually being evicted um, because they've run out of money um, and some of them have had to go back with families or you know, go to other facilities that um, will take concessional residents. Uh, I think one of the key problems, and this has been raised in the Royal Commission, is that aged care providers wait for the government to tell them what to do. They're not innovating and, again, they're not listening to what it is that people want. 
Um, and there's a particular issue of how we cater for those groups that we call the thin markets or the groups that have smaller numbers of people but they have very particular needs and what kind of models of support can we generate that really meet those needs. We also need more ways to empower older people to have their say and to exercise choice. Um, after all, the system is there for older people, not for providers. There was a very telling exchange, you might have followed um, the Royal Commission quizzing people from Japara Aged Care. Um, I'll just quote something from the media where, um, so Mr Sudos was a resident and uh, the provider said uh, he'd been abused and shouted down by this resident's daughter and her activist group at a general facility meeting he attended and stated they showed little respect to me as the CEO of a big organisation. Um, this turned out to be very uh, unfortunate words because the Commission really um, made the point, well, who is the customer here? Um, and then uh, he continued to say that his facility achieved 100% occupancy, so that's a sign that uh, residents and families are confident in their services. And council assisting just said that really just indicates that you're only concerned with your corporate interests. Um, so this just illustrates some of the issues we have, and, and I need to say not all providers, um, but certainly there are providers who really struggle with that issue of who is the customer and how do we develop really good relationships and partnerships with people and their families to deliver the best possible care. Um, Rob raised earlier the particular issues for service provision in Victoria with the transition of the Commonwealth Home Support Program um, to the Commonwealth, so what used to be the old hack or home and community care program delivered mainly by local government in Victoria um, is now changing. A lot of local governments are still in a state of flux around where they're going to go with this um, and governments have been very slow to actually recognise that this is a huge issue for Victoria, the state government in particular. Um, we also have the most state-run residential aged care facilities of any state, mainly in rural and regional areas. There is a government commitment to continue these and that's again crucial because um, services are not viable in many of those areas. So we believe the Victorian government needs to understand that all older Victorians are citizens of the state, whether they live in residential care, receiving home care packages or living independently. The department has set up a new seniors and ageing and aged care division, and that's a positive sign, uh, but we think there needs to be a whole of government approach to ageing that covers not just um, community care and aged care, but housing and infrastructure, lifelong learning, transport, health, all of the issues that affect older people in the community. Um, in supporting people at home, we need to also be aware of the potential for social isolation. Governments are looking at programs to address this, but there are more fundamental drivers underpinning these issues. And again, we heard so much about the issue of community transport um, being a problem for people in the community. Our um, 2018 Code of National Survey also showed that one in five older Australians don't have any money left for leisure or social activities after paying for essential, such as food, rent and power. So no wonder they're isolated. Um, and we can see, again, the current debate around deeming rates showing how pensioners' incomes are being eroded. Um, we're also very aware of you know, the risks of elder abuse for people in the community. I need to wrap up. Um, there's obviously much that needs to be done. Uh, one of the big issues is going to be the political will to implement the recommendations of the Royal Commission. Unlike state governments who say at the beginning that they will implement everything, there's no commitment from the federal government to implement the recommendations. 
So this is where we need people power. Um, we need a campaign once the report comes out to make sure that those things are acted on. Thank you. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. You're on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, yeah, we just were reflecting on uh, this week's news about the nursing home up in in Queensland. Yeah, it was reported in the media that a, a contract dispute between the owners of the Earl Haven Retirement Village in Narang and the contractor running the facility, um, they left scores of vulnerable elderly residents um, basically homeless when it was shut down at two o'clock on Thursday with no notice. So not only have they left these elderly people, you know, without a place to live, they've the workers have uh, haven't been paid uh, for a month. It's been reported. So I mean, yeah, I mean, I wonder if these directors would treat their own parents like this. It explains why privatisation is just shouldn't be uh, in areas of health and well-being. Yeah, and there's also some been some news from the uh, one of the uh, detention centres here for uh, refugees in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, on Facebook this morning, uh, Pamela Kerr, a refugee activist, uh, reported as yeah, a death in the uh, Mitre detention centre mm. out in Broadmeadows. Yeah. A young man. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, there, I'm sure there will be more details about that to come. But, um, yeah, she's asked for support for all the uh, vulnerable people that are also in detention over there um, as they'll be, yeah, probably... Horrifying. Yeah. It's horrifying. <laughs> yes. The whole thing's horrifying. Yeah, it is. Um, we'll move on to uh, what you did yesterday, uh, Marcus. You went down to uh, DP World. Yeah, I was down at the DP World picket line at East Swanson Dock, Mackenzie Road in West Melbourne, where the MUA members down there and the MUA members at DP World right around Australia are involved in a strike. Um, The Melbourne uh, stoppage is a four-day stoppage, so today is their third day of the strike, and uh, they're on strike over, uh, yeah, failed negotiations for a new enterprise agreement, so they're... The workers are fighting back against outsourcing, casualisation, automation, job security and uh, the company attempting to strip strip back all the hard-fought wages and conditions. And yeah, I was down there yesterday and recorded some of the action from the picket line. Alright, and we're back here at the DP World uh, picket line where the wharfies are on strike into their second day and we're joined by one of the uh, workers. So yeah, I mean, what is this strike all about? Hello mate, um, yet again we're here because um, the company has just refused to even negotiate with us on an EBA, a standard EBA that, that has no, nothing in it for us. And um, we're, we're sick of being, being flogged and, and flogged for a very long time and everything's taken away. Even though we negotiate different clauses in our EBA, they get changed after the fact. We're just sick of it, mate. The company has attempted to strip away um, various conditions. What, what do they include? Nearly nearly every condition. They want us on call 24-7 and not paying us for it. They want us to um, owe days through the rosters. Uh, full, full-time employees can be laid off with next to no warning during, during their roster cycle and then have to owe them time after it. It's 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 horrible. Okay, is it a largely casualised workforce? What you've just yeah yep yep yeah. they 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 want to they want to make up uh, I think it's close to 180 full time employees redundant. 
and then have the rest of the workforce uh, casualised. Okay, automation is also a hot, hot, hot issue. Automation is always on the table, um, um, but yeah, yeah, it's the standard thing. Uh, I can't, I, I can't stress enough. It, it tends to get, it tends to get played out in in um, in the commission a lot. They scream to the commission and uh, look up look up at the ceiling when it comes time to actually negotiate with their own workforce. Income protection was an entitlement you guys had, and the and company they stripped attacked. it away. Yes, they stripped it away, and um, they're, they're using it at, at the moment. They're, um, they've reinstated it to try and use it as some sort of leverage to throw it, but it's not actually their money. It's our money that they're using against us. It, um, it's only nothing's been said in concrete. There's not one single. There's not one single thing that's ever been agreed on during this whole process and it looks like that they won't they won't won't even come to the party on anything that sounds sensible um can't do it okay you just want to describe the listeners the scene here today down at the picket line um i think it's quite packed um it's um yeah there's a lot of people here and uh they're all in full support and i think they're in full agreement of why why we're here and yeah, that's it. Mate. A, lot of, a lot of workers from other unions supporting the MUA and all and the Wharfies at, at yeah, DP. We've World. got teachers, we've got CMFBU, we've got education unions, we've got uh, trades hall person people down here. It's it's pretty good. It's great to see. So at this stage, it's a four-day stoppage, a ninety-six-hour stoppage. Obviously, there's going to be plans for further stoppages if the company don't sit down and negotiate. Yes, mate. Yeah, it's going to be all on. We're not putting up with this. We can't. We, we just can't. The job's not worth doing. Okay, do you want to uh, tell the listeners how they can uh, support the picket line? Uh, yeah, what are the details of the address? Yeah, Mackenzie, Mackenzie Road, West Melbourne, guys. Um, get get down here and please, yeah, if you've got time, come down and support the Wharfies. Thanks, mate. Thank you. So, <laughs> uh, the first person, give him a big, uh, big warm welcome is Shane Stevens, the very brand new State Secretary of the MUA. Give it up for him. Thank you, Matt. Hey. I also want to pay my respects to the uh, original owners of this land we meet on today, the Coolum Nation, and uh, pay my respects to the uh, elders, uh, both past and present. Thank you very much. What a spectacular turnout. Really exciting. Um, we've had a, a great number of people since Wednesday here, day and night. Um, spectacular. Thank you to you guys that have been doing it, the men and women of the, of the MUA and other unions, fantastic, very excited about this. Um, what we are here because we, ha we have a four-day stoppage because our EBA talks have stalled. Now, we've been in uh, negotiations with the company, Dubai Ports World, since August last year. Now, we've had about 30 meetings uh, at the Part A level. Now, for what that means is Part A is the, uh, the part of the EBA that covers all ports. Now, Dubai Ports World has uh, three other ports, Port Botany, Brisbane and Fremantle. Now, we have over that time culled a lot of our claims. Now, they're all very important to us, but in good faith bargaining, we culled it down to what we consider die-in-the-ditch claims, and most of them have no cost to them. So at this stage, the company have conceded to nothing. Even, even the claims that they agree to uh, agree on and all we need to do is just tweak them and make them right. They're still ignoring that. So 
last March we had some stoppages and some overtime bans, and uh, we thought, oh, that'll, that'll bring them back to the table, which they asked for. So we ceased that. Now, in that time, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing changed from the company's stance. So this has forced this action now, this action of a four-day strike. Um, it's something we, we generally don't want to do because we need to be back at work. We need to work, but we also need to negotiate in good faith. And that hasn't happened. So what I'm saying is what we're doing here is the last thing we should be doing, but we have to do it because they are forcing our hand. So, and it's been a great support. I haven't seen anything like this for years. Sensational. I can't thank all the members and supporters enough. Now, what some of the key issues are, there's quite a few actually, but the key ones, for instance, they want to outsource cargo care. Now, cargo care is the uh, reefer monitors, the wharfies that look after uh, the refrigerated containers. Now, that's been an, an historical job on the waterfront since, since we've had containers. It's a specialised job, they do it well, and uh, they're very well respected with what they do. Now, the company want to outsource that. Now, all that means is outsourcing, subcontracting, means casualisation. Now, when you consider this, this company here has no respect for their workers. They're ignoring rights of the Australian workers. And I've got to make it this point too. One of our early meetings, uh, Part A meetings we had, one of the delegates asked the, uh, the company CEO, how much tax does the, the, the Dubai Ports World pay? Now, he hesitated in that response, and we knew, knew it was coming. He hesitated, took a gulp and said, nothing. So what does that tell you about a, you know, the corporate avoidance? Individually, all of you pay more tax than this company does. So everything... Everything that we make for them, and we make a hell of a lot of money all around the, the, the country for this, this company, all flies out of here back to the Sultan. So how, how's that for corporate avoidance? So all we're asking is for a fair EBA and, and a fair deal for a fair day's work. Now, pe people talk about the money. That takes care of itself. We sort that out. But the key issues, another one is income protection. Now, that's, that's to support our families and ourselves when we get injured outside of work. Now, that's ours, and we pay for it. All the company have to do is sign off on it, put a signature somewhere, and pay that money into the policy. They're holding us to ransom with that. They're using it as a wedge because they, they want to buckle us. Now, how immoral is that? Now, while we're getting them to pay it now, it's still not locked away. There's still a little bit of work to do it, but that is so morally wrong. They've got nothing else to go. So we, we, say, we, we say to them... It's, it, when you've seen the lowest of low, they come out with stuff like that. Um, another issue is uh, we want a clause in our EBA, EBA about domestic violence. We want some paid leave. Now, it gets me when you've got a company as big as this that is accredited with white ribbon. Um, it makes you wonder when they can't come to the table with that. They say, oh, we've got a policy. And we say, no, 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 that's, that's all right. Your policies change and we have no input into it. And it doesn't really mean the paper it's written on from time to time. So we want something in our EBA that's paid for and, and people that suffer domestic violence are respected and looked after. Um, I just got a message. Uh, apparently the DP World's website under media has elevated their white ribbon position at the top of their page. Now, 
Now, what's that tell you? Yeah. So they, they've been listening to the press. Another thing, oh, yeah, we, we had the press here the other day. We had some interviews which went really well. And as we all know, they get uh, dissected and twisted and stuff. And so what you see on the TV is not, not real. And it was vis- very disappointing that uh, Channel 10, um, with their live feed, there was a reporter, Janie, what's her name? I don't know. Um, what she reported was not spoken about whatsoever. So it was almost like her media release was straight from Dubai Ports World. And she actually mentioned about this. Now, we've heard this before when um, we had the VICT uh, dispute a couple of years ago down at Web Dock that we were holding up medical supplies and holding um, the health of Australians to ransom. Well, that wasn't true because back then, too, they were talking about the EpiPens. Now, um, the, the sole supplier of those told us uh, they don't come in by ship. They're actually flown in, but no one ever got to hear about that. Now, the same deal here, they're saying we do this. Now, that's just rubbish too. Because in actual fact, yesterday, the company got in touch with us and said, look, there's an important roof that needed to be um, loaded on a truck at 12 o'clock to get out of here. And we know what their tricks are like. So we said, listen, if it's that important, you give us the manifest, the description of what's on it and the box number, etc., and we'll look at it. Because what it was was human blood plasma, um, and that's very serious to get out. Um, so we said, not a problem. We, we got the details and we'll do that. So... There is no way we are ever going to ha- hold the Australian people to ransom over medical issues like that. Um, just on closing, I also I do want to thank everyone once again. It's a sensational turnout. Um, thank you very much for uh, supporting us, all the other unions, uh, members of the community and stuff. Excellent. And I'm very proud to be up here to talk to you about this. Uh, you may know that uh, myself... Dave Ball, Deputy Secretary, uh, Robbie Lunson, Assistant Secretary, and uh, Bob, Bobby Patchett, Assistant Secretary, been voted in for the uh, fifth time. The rest of us uh, started last week. So very excited to be uh, on the front with all this. Thanks again. And why is it important that workers uh, support each other and different unions are down here at the picket line today? Yeah. Uh, look, the bosses are organised, um, for starters, so I'm for, I'm for workers being organised. Bosses support each other um, against, you know, the workforce uh, individually. That's one good reason. We're not going to win if we're not united. Uh, I think as well, like, every boss in the country is looking at what every other one is doing. So when one boss or one industry gets away with cuts, uh, every other boss, you know, licks their lips and says, oh, you ripper, I'll use that now as an argument uh, as to why my workforce should suffer the same cuts. So pretty much, you know, I don't know what the saying is about boats rising and sinking together, but, uh, yeah, I, I just think when, bo- when bosses get away with one cut somewhere, they get away with it everywhere. Please give a big warm, warm dock welcome to Steve McGowan, who's the delegate at DP World. So give him a big warm, uh, big warm welcome. Hello comrades, thanks for coming down today, really appreciate uh, your support, the thing that we need to get out to the community, it's just not about single issues in a place like this, we are the tip of the spear, if in a place like this, which is, which is fully unionised, they can attack us and they can destroy us, they will come for you, if they can break us, they will come for you, our fight is your fight, we need to think about the future, we need to think about all the young men and women 
and their working lives over the next 30 and 40 years who are going to be destroyed, who are going to be competing unfairly with overseas workers who are brought to this country and exploited absolutely ruthlessly by these big companies. So don't just think it's just about containers. Don't just think it's about ships or wharfies. It's a union fight. We are all union members. We need to get out there. We need to speak to our colleagues. We need to speak to people in the workplace and tell them our fight is your fight. And if we don't fight, we will never win. We need to stand up. We need to fight. We need to be united. Otherwise, we are all in trouble. Okay? Union membership in this country is 15 to 20%. We are the ones that win the conditions for everybody else. And if we are broken, what hope is there for a woman who doesn't speak very good English, who has no union, who's in a factory somewhere? She has got no hope. The workers of this country do not have any hope if they can break big unions like the ETU and the MUA and the CFMEU. There is no hope for the rest of the country. And that's why we need to stand up. We need to stand strong. We need to be united. United, we cannot be defeated. Stand strong, comrades! All right, we've only got a couple more, but I think uh, everyone's going to want to hear from this, uh, this next speaker. He's no stranger to anyone here. He's a trade unionist. He's an environmentalist. He's a concerned member of the community. He's the, one of the stalwarts of the BLF in the old days. He's Dave Karen. Give it up for Dave Karen, everybody. Okay, so, so just by bent of being old... I wanted to give you some background, some history, because for a lot of you are young and, and, and you simply weren't there when a lot of the changes came in that have led us here to today. So we talk about subcontracting. You know, it's a sham contracting where the employer actually employs you but has you at arm's length, so it doesn't have to bear any of the responsibility for employing you. Where we talk about the right to strike which we don't actually have any longer in this country. It's something we have to take and when we do, our unions and our leaders get penalised. We're at a stage now where they want to be able to tell us who can lead us and who cannot. So where did that all start? So that started in the 70s, in the late 70s, where we saw the rollout of what we all now call neoliberalism. That is where our young people, especially work without rights. Before they brought those changes in, they had to bring in anti-solidarity laws, what they call 45D&E. What those laws say is that when we show solidarity, it's not solidarity, it's conspiracy and it's illegal. So we've got to be very clear on this because this dispute and the company in there, I know you're listening and I know you're filming, so listen to this. We know what led us here today. And it's not just an EBA dispute, as Shane, one of our leaders, told us. This is about our history. That's what led us here today. Because where the employer is advised and told that they must show solidarity with each other, our solidarity is made illegal. So we, we have to understand this basic fact because every time they injunct a union off a dispute and say that that union now cannot legally run that dispute, they do it using 45 d &E. They do it using the anti-solidarity laws. They line the trucks up. They say we're hitting two, three and four employers. 
and therefore that's illegal. Whereas the employer tries to hire scabs, that's a secondary boycott against us. Every time they trade on, it's a secondary boycott against us. If we can't withdraw our labour and not have it replaced by another worker, then there is no right to strike. So even, even the conservative organisation like the United Nations, the ILO, the Industrial Labour Organisation connected to the UN, has statutes that we are signatory to. And they say where a government uses anti-solidarity laws like 45 DE, they should also have a law that says no secondary workforce, no scabs. No scabs. So if we can withdraw our labour and they can't replace us, who would win that dispute? Quite clearly we would. So go back to 1977 and think. When they took away our legal right to show solidarity with each other, when they outlawed that, that's when they moved on privatisation, casualisation, offshoring of jobs, sham contracting. That's when they said to our young, you will now work without rights. That's not an Australia we choose to live in. This is the Australia we want to live in. Look at us. This is us at our best. This is us showing solidarity. Don't you get that tingle up your spine? Don't you know that because you're here and you know why you're here? Whereas the boss is only here for money, we are here for each other. It's solidarity between human beings, between workers. And that must be a legal right we have. Thank you. A weak solidarity, Bricky Teen Rissom, when we have to admire US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the pause restraint after the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Ambassador said hurtful and clearly inaccurate things about him. Inept, dysfunctional. Where did that come from? Monday, as the leaked lies emerged, Donald, in his usual controlled way, shouted over a noisy helicopter about to take him from his New Jersey golf club to his day job that the ambassador has not served the UK well. We're not a fan of that man. I can see things about him, but I won't bother. See, we have to admire the man. Ignore the insults. Don't bother. Maturity. That was Monday. From then on, he did bother. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, not only that, I do not know the ambassador. He is not liked or well thought of within the US of. We will no longer deal with him. But Donald also turned his restraint, restrained vitriol on Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo, brackets temporary, Theresa down with May Day. What a mess she and her representatives have created. Then, with his equally respected modesty, I told her how it should be done, but she decided to go another way. The good news for the wonderful Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country is that they will soon have a new Big Supremo. But Donald had every right to be upset. The ambassador, not one person in the US of likes or is well thought of, Sir Kim, that's his name, said... As seen from here, we really don't believe that the administration is going to become substantially more normal, less dysfunctional, less unpredictable, less faction-riven, less diplomatically clumsy and inept. Donald radiated insecurity, and US of policy on Iran was incoherent, he wrote confidentially, and hasn't the confidential bit worked a treat, but how the hell would we know conclusively if his Iran policy is incoherent or not? It, it might be just the way he says it. 
The Foreign Secretary, one of the candidates for Theresa's job, said Sir Kim's views were his own and not the view of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country government. Our view is that over time the administration just may become a bit more normal, less dysfunctional, less unpredictable, less faction-riven and less diplomatically clumsy and inept. By week's end, Sir Kim had beaten Theresa out the door. As a reflection on the mental capacity of both of them, Lord Rupert's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head says Donald should receive the Nobel Peace Prize and he is serious. And how dare human rights campaigner Amal Clooney get stuck into True Blue Aussie over a couple of raids on press officers and a journalist's home by our federal... Uh, sorry, our protectors of our freedoms, suggesting we give an excuse to even more repressive regimes, bringing us back to that incoherent problem because that great thinker Barnacle sprang to our defence, in which I think he was trying to say those raided knew they were breaking the law, which leads us to ponder, given our great respect for Barnacle's legal opinions, well, almost judgments, why they haven't all been charged, and the Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony, all be an Uzi, said we must defend the freedom of the press. The Socialist Party believes Lord Rupert of Wapping and the other media barons must have the freedom to publish the rubbish they fabricate. It's, it's their wealth-given right. And after the election, let me say, the Socialist Party has no problems whatever with right-wing rubbish. After all, right-wing rubbish won the election, and we've learned from that result. And a week when the Uluru Statement from the Heart ran up against the Canberra cons with no heart. Mentioned last week, Christian Potom is not only the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, in which he said he would adopt only moderate changes, like deregistering evil unions and banning evil union bosses, he is also the Attorney General, and in that role declared the government's response to the Uluru Statement was miles away, because the wording was not in legislative legal. Obviously, thanks to the bloody ignorant Terranullius people or non-people posing a major problem, a miles away problem for the legislative draft mob. And this week, the token minister for keeping the black non-people in their place said the government could put part of the statement to a referendum within three years. No miles away with him. Although he warned we couldn't rush these things, and 231 years obviously isn't quite long enough, and thus the Uluru Statement from the Heart ran up against the Canberra cons with no heart. But then, thanks to the no hearts, 231 years won't matter, because the very people who determine energy and fry the planet policy, that we can't afford to save the planet, but my God, it will die with a healthy economy, those very people tell us true treaty, reconciliation, an indigenous voice would be divisive and they hate anything divisive like, like, well, say a same-sex marriage plebiscite. <clears throat> oh no, of course, in that case, the usual suspects assured us it would not be divisive. But in this case, it would be. And the terra nullius people should become part of white society on merit, because we're all starting from an equal base. And how arrogant of the terra nullius first peoples to devise a surreptitious plan to divide the invaders. Clearly divisive proposals like, uh, would you please at least recognise we exist? What we will recognise is they're trying to split us.
231 years, after largely beating the rap on drug charges, former footballer and coach Mark Thompson said he was now working on green business issues. Given he became a big-time developer, anyone who has seen his Armstrong's Creek destruction of habitat on the Geelong Torquay Road would agree he's got a lot of ground to make up, given the amount of ground and its flora and fauna he's unmade up, destroyed which had lived in relative peace there for much longer than 231 years. That's where the 231 could come in handy, 231 years of retribution from Mark, bringing us to distribution. Our proud energy companies keep telling us we could pay less for gas, for instance, if only certain state governments, and we know who they are, listener, would open up the gas they have locked up on specious grounds like it would destroy the environment, when they know the environment should never come between a resource company and a bag of lovely, lovely money. And gas is the answer to climate change, and less polluting than the coal and oil these same great companies also control. Presumably because our state energy bodies were privatised to avoid vertical integration and generate, pun only slightly intended, the low prices we now enjoy through the super-efficient hand of the private sector on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy. Just a touch of bad luck then that this Global Energy Monitor report says liquefied natural gas is worse for the environment than coal, mainly through the methane emissions from its extraction. But then we can feel pretty secure because the proud energy companies all guarantee the environmental impacts of whatever they do will be minimal. And the sundry rubber stamp bodies appointed to conduct environmental impact studies into all these things always agree with them, proving the anti-progress, anti-trubluwazi, anti-jobs environmental ratbags are 100% wrong. There's the difference. The bloody selfish environmentalists want everything while the responsible resource behemoths are prepared to compromise. Like Woodside Emissions, the great resource behemoths. See, the Western Trublowazi government's Environmental Protection Authority has misunderstood its role, unlike our esteemed EPA here in Victoria, and has this misguided attitude that an Environmental Protection Authority's role is environmental protection. Good grief! How could the delicate flower that is the economy perform its critical social duty if all these state bodies which have no right to interfere in the, in the marketplace anyway had that attitude? And the Western Trublowazi EPA wants all resource projects to have zero carbon emissions. And Woodside Emissions has accused the government of secrecy over the policy. We must have an openness policy in all of these matters. Uh, yes, yes, we agree here at 3CR. What are your total emissions, by the way? That is a matter of commercial confidentiality. No, no, I'm here to expose anti-business secrecy. Fair enough. Oh, and if we thought the tax cuts for the filthy rich supported by the Socialist Party may just be a handout to the filthy rich, wrong. And the confirmation from no lesser hero of working class history than former ACTU secretary, Little Billy Kiltham, architect of the collapse in evil union membership, alongside his great mate, the sadly um, lamented nuclear hawk himself. Little Billy declared this week that even after the cuts, the top rate for the filthy rich is still too high. There. 
even in retirement, still fighting his guts out for those for whom he has always fought his guts out. And finally, we referred a couple of weeks ago to Big Supremo Scuttlebin Morlash Sun's declaration he had a long to-do list to fulfil his non-mandate, including his reverse mandate necessity to reform caring business class relations to offset the current massive bias in fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices just looks like it, toward the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. And we can be sure little Billy would agree. Why, in some very rare cases, loopholes, the odd union is allowed to act like a union. But good news. Scuttle them assured us this week his to-do list does not include increasing the doll. Why bother? After all, his Minister for Homelessness said homelessness is good and he'll do his best to perpetuate it. Doing good, yes. The other little Billy, little Billy short and ambition, has a lot to answer for. Good morning. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. And you're back. It's uh, Solidarity Breakfast. Thanks very much for that report, Marcus. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, they're in the third day of their strike down at uh, East Swanson Dock, Mackenzie uh, Road, West Melbourne. So, yeah, all power to day. them. And, yeah, one more day and then hopefully they go back to the negotiating table. But as they said yesterday, they're willing and prepared to uh, take further strike action to, uh, yeah, have their demands met and protect all their hard-fought one wages and conditions. So. And they'd love it if people went down there yeah. and uh, joined them. Uh, we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? I'm going very well, thanks, Annie. And uh, I have been listening for the last hour and a half, eagerly awaiting your phone call. So I'm very pleased to be talking with you. Yeah, yeah. But, and you were, you were ribbing me for my disparaging com- uh, comments that you <laughs> might be Wondering asleep. Aloud about whether I would be awake and listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, anyway. Anyway, of course, we've got uh, Rebecca and Marcus in the studio and uh, we're eager to hear your your thoughts around the... uh, Green New Deal. Yeah. Around what? The The Green New Deal and uh, how the unions could involve themselves because, of course, the big problem uh, and uh, pressure point that the LNP have been able to... uh, um, get mileage out of is the uh, fear that uh, working people have that they're going to lose jobs uh, if uh, the settings that are already in place, i.e. fracking, coal mining and all other environmental destruction is off the table, they're all going to lose their jobs and nobody will have a future. Yes, well, I think that um, uh, we should talk about that and I, because it, I think it provides us with some uh, uh, insights and, and important talking points about uh, strategy for the Labor movement overall, and particularly those of us who count ourselves as left-wingers. Um, I think there are some clues in some moments of inspiration that have gone on this week about the difficulties we face, but, uh, as I said, some inspiration about them as well. I'll just make a couple of notes of those as a way of introducing um, a discussion about this so-called new Green Deal. Um, firstly, uh, I just listened to Dave Kerrin, 
uh, in Marcus's recording of the uh, meeting at DP World in Melbourne yesterday. I think that short speech should be uh, elaborated upon. It is gold. And I think the fact that Dave takes us back to the beginnings of anti-solidarity law uh, in our modern times is utterly important. Uh, so it should be studied and elaborated upon in various ways. I agree with him completely about what he was saying about 1978's uh, anti-solidarity laws, the, so, uh, the sections 45D and E, and the impact they have had has been strategically profound against us. And it has also shown the superiority of the employer's strategy over those decades since, uh, over our strategy. Now, Don, you were actually a uh, an organiser then, and uh, oh, you... A stop shit do it then, yeah, because uh, we've talked about this before. Because you were saying that you actually believe that this is the beginnings of uh, the uh, fall in union membership. Uh, it's uh, rather than a reaction to uh, neo uh, liberal policies coming out of the Labor Party, that actually this particular anti solidarity law was actually. Uh, the thing that people should have been uh, focusing on? Well, there is a prehistory to the history, of course, because in 1969, the uh, the union movement and beyond successfully defeated the penal powers that were used by employers and the Fair Work Commission, it wasn't called that then, of course, against workers that had been going on for 15 years or so. Now, that defeat of those pro-employer laws against workers in 1969 took 10 years of preparation. Yep. Uh, and they led to then, and it's shown in the numbers, an escalation of industrial activity by workers that reversed inequality at the time and reduced the rate of ex- significantly the rate of exploitation of workers. So when, when Fraser gets elected, he immediately becomes keen to demonise unions and to find a new set of laws. And he does that by 1978. And that's where Dave is correct in identifying that new wave of industrial laws as probably the most successful anti-solidarity law because it broke down the union's capacity to use solidarity between workers in different work sites. Yeah, so patent bargaining, effectively. Um, uh, it reminds me of this uh, sign that uh, I've, that's reappearing at demonstrations where they say it's they, are, they only call it a class war when we fight back. Yes, I think, well, I think that's uh, part of their uh, ideology, their way of building a mental hegemony in the, in the population generally against the idea of struggle against fighting back. And uh, that has also been quite successful. One one of the many indicators of that, uh, and by the way, it is possible, as we should discuss, to develop a strategy in the most dire of circumstances for workers that can lead to success. And one of those other moments of inspiration this week, I think, has been 
overall the uh, the escalated and very effective uh, escalation of the celebration of NAIDOC, NAIDOC Week. Yep. And within that, I think uh, one of the things that I was reminded of was the great uh, Pilbara pastoral workers strike, which was both for industrial wages to be paid to sheep uh, workers who were overwhelmingly Aboriginal workers. And that, that went for, in the first instance, about eight years. Yeah. Uh, and then for longer. It's never been officially stopped because it's also about land rights. Yeah, yeah, because as Vincent yeah. Lagari says, we can wait. We're well, good waiters. Vincent, of course, was associated with the more widely known Gurindji struggle over land rights and wages. But this particular struggle predated by some time the Gurindji struggle. So the Pilbara work, pastoral workers strike, which is documented in a wonderful video and book called How the West Was Lost. And it describes the strategy and the methods of organising that went on because uh, uh, they, they were remote workers and so on. So it's, it's actually incredibly important, this little inspirational moment in our history that shows that despite the most dire laws and other things that are reigned against workers that we can win if we pay attention to strategy. And I guess what you're getting at is that... Uh this isn't a fight that can be lost, ultimately, and so people have to come up with those strategies. And uh, where do you think that the Green New Deal or the New Green Deal, I, I do have a habit of making words jump around a bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what the, uh, is it New Green Deal? No, Green New Deal. Green New yeah. Deal. I am right. You're wrong. I'm right. <laughs> okay. Um not that it really matters. Where do you reckon that, I mean, because, uh, you know, like, uh, there's no uh, future in a dead planet and, you know, you can't eat, eat, uh, drink oil and you can't breathe uh, carbon monoxide. So uh, we are actually fighting for our lives, workers included. Yes, and unions have to fight on many fronts. And so when we look at something about, we start discussing what unions should do to help reverse, to stop and reverse climate change, we have to start from the present reality that we are in. And that, of course, reflects that union density is at around 12% and probably in single figures when it comes to private, the private sector. Now, that means that that actually makes it extremely difficult, although not impossible if it is thought through about what strategy you employ, to develop union participation because there are so many other calls on union business beyond what you know is loosely called bread and butter unionism. So we have to keep that in mind when we work out how we deal with, how workers deal with. But deal with it they must, and there are all sorts of starting points. So, for example, um, there was a very interesting report uh, earlier in the week by uh, a, a commentator by the name of Vijay Prasad, who reported upon burnt workers being the newest wave of climate casualties. What? Sunburnt or burnt? Sunburnt. Oh, phew. Sunburnt. And the, degree, the extent of sunburn happening in is the highest 
in Asia and in Southeast Asia, oh, where people. for the purpose of all the statistics where we are, and cancer, skin cancer, the highest, and it is way above the global average. Jeez. And that's what this um, report from Vijay Prasad shows. Now, we know, I know from personal experience of working with workers who work outdoors, and uh, is that this is a big issue in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it's an opening. It's one of several openings for unions to become more actively interventionist, uh, uh, to be part of the movement to reverse climate change. Oh, that's so such an interesting approach. That's real grassroots stuff. Yes, yes, and it become it it makes climate change real as an industrial issue interact. Uh, interact with all of the other issues that are associated with climate change. And there are other ways in which that has occurred also. I think one of the most important things that is happening right now on that front is that the secondary school students have made a mental breakthrough with their strike actions. When I say a mental breakthrough, I don't mean a psychological person. (laughs) I mean that in terms of they have broken apart this idea that just just protest alone uh, uh, is not quite enough. They're breaking that apart and saying protest has got to go on the offensive. And the offensive means that we don't stick by the rules, we defy them, and that means that we go on strike. Yeah, they're calling for a strike, workers' strike. Now, how do you translate that into a worker's situation where the penal powers of the 21st century are quite significant against workers? Now, they are calling, the students, secondary school students are now calling for adults and unions specifically to join their strike on September the 20th, which will be a global week of action. And we have to start the process of joining in on that. And uh, it is really good to see that a number of unions have already endorsed that call. But it's one thing to endorse a call, to pass a resolution saying we agree with that. It's also having the, uh, if you like, the tactics that fit within the strategy and the education materials that enable and support workers actually doing it. And once again, I think it's worthwhile, we should do this perhaps over the next two or three discussions, looking at the material that's being provided for secondary school students' website about how workers can go about doing that. Now, All that, right. takes us, that takes us to the Green New Deal thing. Well, you have to be hurrying because we've yeah. got three minutes. You've got three minutes. Go for it. The, way, the, the Green New Deal thing is, is something that's come out of the Democratic Socialists or some parts of it in the USA, and it's taken off there. Yeah. In its present form, it is a set of principles that has been designed by activist experts. And that's okay insofar as it goes. However, we must work out how to bring workers and their communities into the design of what it might mean. The Green New Deal is actually an American reference back to the New Deal economic program based on Keynesianism that was introduced by uh, President Roosevelt in the 1930s against the the Depression. So they're playing around with an American experience. We don't have to call it that. It doesn't matter, really, what we call it. 
But from our point of view, the issue becomes this. Will we go for a technocratic, albeit progressive, approach to forming the content of a new economy that is both democratic and able to reverse climate change? Will it be driven by experts, many of them government and academic people, or who, who do have genuine yeah, yeah. Or, or will it be designed and developed by workers? In other words, will work? how much will workers be the protagonists of the changes? Uh, that is the big strategic question that needs to unfold. It is possible, and if we go back to that story about... Uh, about the burnt workers. Yeah. One, in Southeast Asia, one of the most powerful actions to support workers to face sunburn from climate change events has been enacted by the Kerala government in Southeast in, uh, Southwest India. And at the same time, that government has taken important steps to put workers in their communities in charge of of transforming the economy so that it is counter to climate change. Oh, we'll have to... Hey, no, no, you have to stop mid-sentence. I'm sorry, but that's a fantastic point to to finish at because we'd love to find out more about what's going on in Kerala. So next time we speak, Don, we'd love to hear more about this. And let's expand on how that can be applied... To Australia. Australia, right from the situation of 14% union density that we are in right now. Yeah. Thanks very much for talking to us. It is business. Yeah. It certainly is. Uh, thanks very much for talking to us. All the best to everybody. Bye for now. Thanks, yeah, bye-bye. Uh, we've come to the end of the program. Uh, we weren't just uh, shuffling him off. We really have come to the end of the program. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, went to uh, community art at the beginning with the... Uh, um, oh, and I just film. wanted to mention, yeah, it was the yeah. Melbourne Film Documentary Film Festival. I just occurred to me that there is a film on about the artist Luby, and in that film is an inter- interviews with uh, Humphrey McQueen because it turned out that Luby uh, was he was Luby's auto, uh, biographer. Oh. <laughs> so if you want to, to catch uh, Humphrey in the live, in the flesh, or in the uh, celluloid flesh, then you can go and see Luby at the see Melbourne. See what his face looks like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, then we then we uh, were hearing about uh, aged care. We moved on to DP World and the fight for the MUA's uh, uh, conditions and uh, salaries. We moved on to This Is The Week That Was and then we talked to Don. Uh, and you guys have decided on the uh, last track. And why are we going to have this last track? Yes. Oh, we're going to go with a track from Kutcher Edwards because uh, this week has been NAIDOC week and Kutcher and his team have been busy uh, doing the prison broadcast for Beyond the Bars for 3CR. And what yeah. a man. They always do such an amazing job every year going yeah. into the prisons. and yeah. So we're going out with Kutcher Edwards. Is this what we deserve? 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 All I'm asking, Lord, is this what we deserve? 
much time began Our ancestors' footprints Are buried in the sand We are but caretakers Of this ancient land But you still don't understand what we deserve Is this what we deserve Is this what we deserve Can you tell me now Is this what we deserve Your laws are so Justify our basic human rights have been denied. Come up with excuses like your hands are tied, but you go on committing genocide. Is this what we deserve? what we deserve Is this what we deserve Can you tell me now Is this what we deserve Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power radical podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.